So when we look back to, uh, on the life of Jesus and say, did Jesus exist? I, I think, I, I look outside of the Bible and the evidence outside of the Bible for the existence of Jesus. And uh, those external sources to me are the clincher. Okay, external sources. Can you expound a little bit on that? Because help yes, us out with that. I can, and I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are actually, there's actually nine major historical sources outside of the New Testament and Paul's writings that, that talk about Christianity and talk about Jesus. And these are guys that, uh, these were major historians in the, in the Jewish realm, in the Roman realm. Uh, these guys were governors. Uh, and these guys wrote history, and they wrote history more uh, to talk about political and military figures. Uh, so the Musja history would include a, a big section on uh, Mayor Ptolemy. Uh, but <laughs> a really big section, a really, really big section. It would be section. a large section. <laughs> what's interesting, though, is that these guys have inserted uh, tales or stories or legends or whatever you want to call it. We know that they're the truth, but they've inserted these stories about Jesus. And it'll be kind of like in that Musja history, while reading about Fraser Tolmy, having a little story about Steve Atkins in there. Very small and, story. Uh, and it would be, but it would be just enough that, <laughs> that we'd remember you forever. And so some of these guys, and, and I just uh, I want to highlight a couple of them, is Josephus was a Jewish historian. And Josephus, he had no reason to whatsoever to ever want to write about uh, Jesus, right? It, in fact, hurt his case most of the time, but he was such a, a detailed Jewish historian who actually, the story of of Josephus is kind of funny because he got captured by the Romans and he's kind of said, I can be a Roman too. And so they, they said, oh, I guess. He goes, I'm really smart. Here's my resume. Hire me. I'll work for nothing. I'll work for just not death. And so Josephus worked for the Jewish uh, people and then turned over and wrote uh, for the Romans. But he wrote history and he has volumes, thick volumes. And they're actually out in the Briarcrest College Library. You can read his Antiquities or Testimonium Flavinium. And they are... There's Saturday night reading right there. <laughs> and if, if you go through, there's a section in each, a little section on each. But to summarize, he talked about Jesus being good and, and virtuous and disciples. He had disciples that followed him and, and claimed that he rose after three days. Uh, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and he had a brother named James. And so these are some major uh, corroborating bits of evidence. And then another one is uh, Tacitus. He was a Roman historian, top-notch, first-ranked guy. And, and he talked about Jesus suffering under Pilate lived during the reign of Tiberius, and he had followers, and, they, and that they were being killed. And uh, one other highlight is Pliny, Pliny the Younger. Don't get him confused with Pliny the Elder. Mm. Not even related, but when your name's Pliny, you have no last name, older, younger. He was a Roman governor of Turkey, and he, and he wrote uh, a story about trying to get Christians to renounce their faith, and he threatened death, and they would not even renounce their faith. So we have these, these sources, and, and there's nine total, so... Uh, obviously six others, that fit this realm of talking about Jesus and his followers. And they're right from that time, right from that time in history, right and kind of almost live. So we can be confident that Jesus is a historical figure. There's no doubt about that. I, I think, and I look at the skeptics of today, like H.G. Uh, Wells, we all know kind of him from the War of the Worlds. He wrote a lot of history and a lot of, uh, uh, of novels and stuff. And, and he wrote, he was a non-Christian, he wrote, about Jesus and his exact quote, here was a man, that part of the tale could not have been invented. And so we look at that, that's a, someone from today, a scholar from, from today saying that there's so much evidence for Jesus being on the scene. Whether he was the son of God is the next question, but did he exist? Absolutely. And there's not one stitch of evidence from, from ancient history that, that, that denounces the, the fact that Jesus lived on this earth. 
Okay, that sounds pretty solid. How about, let me throw another one at you and then we'll, we'll go to the resurrection. So sure. uh, I think another big one, okay, so Jesus was a historical figure. He actually lived, but uh, what about the Bible? So we have these Bible accounts about Jesus, but, mm-hmm. you know, they were written a long time ago and then translated and translated. And so I think a lot of people would think, well, it's like the telephone game. I whisper to you and the next person, the next person, and eventually we got the wrong message at the end. So how can we be confident about the Bibles that we have today? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. A little different than the one you told me to prepare for. <laughs> but you know what? I just, I just thought after 20 years you'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, we'll go with that one. <laughs> so sorry, we'll go, sorry. If, we talk if you about, start sweating, I'll... <laughs> <laughs> if we talk about the, the whole telephone game thing, you have to understand the oral culture of history. Uh, back then, it was, there was nothing to really distract our brains, right? So those guys, they relied on memorization of everything. And so they would memorize stories and pass it on. And in the public place, there was guys that, they were kind of like uh, the public correctors of the day, right? If you erred on a story, you were allowed to publicly uh, correct that person. So as they were sharing the Gospels, if somebody came along and, and started making up sort of a, an exaggerated reference or kind of something legendary, there'd be someone to come along, maybe he wasn't the most liked in town, he'd go, in fact, that is incorrect. <laughs> All right, thanks. Right, and, and, we, and that, kind of, that was the culture, and you were allowed to do that in the culture because it was an oral culture and, and things weren't written down. Right, to write something down took a lot of... Ah. Right, so you pretty quickly... You pretty quickly you gave up on that. You said, I'm just going to tell my buddy the story, right? You can imagine what they do with phones today, those guys. <laughs> this is crazy. We don't have to chisel. Our kids today would pay attention a lot more. Hey, put down your chisel and stone rock, yeah, that's right. right? Instead that's of right. put away your phone, it would be a little obvious you're in the room. Are you chiseling back there? Yeah, yeah I am. <laughs> so so in, that, in that kind of a culture, uh, it, was, it, was, it was really tough for non-truths to survive. But if you, if you take the New Testament and the story of Jesus and, and we say, the, most people, will, secular scholars will agree that the, the New Testament was written 40 to 60 years after the events happened. Many, many eyewitnesses would still be around who would be willing and able and wanting to correct this, especially those, the Pharisee type, right? The, the people who disagreed with what went on. They would be around to correct any stories that went astray. And so... Uh, we, we, we just don't have that. And, and we have them, the Jewish people, calling Jesus a sorcerer because he did miracles. So there's evidence he did miracles. They just don't attest it to the Son of God. And if we're going to believe that Alexander the Great was true or King Arthur or Tiberius Caesar, all of these guys, their biographies are written four to 500 years after they lived. There is absolutely no eyewitnesses left to know if the truth is being told. But the, the biographies of Jesus were written within the lifetime of all those eyewitnesses. And of course, Paul's writings were written within five to ten years. So we have this very short time frame. Legend cannot develop in that time with the eyewitnesses around who would publicly correct false information. Cool. Great. You ready to talk about the resurrection? That's one thing we did prepare for. (laughs) 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 All right, I'll let you go. Have fun and look forward to... We'll look forward to this. So, uh, of course, the resurrection is probably the, one of the most questioned events in the, in the Bible, right? In the history of, of Christianity. Did this event happen? Because this event 
is the foundation of our faith, right? It's the most hotly disputed topic in all of history. It forms the basis of our faith. And if you think about it, there was no eyewitness to it. Nobody was in the tomb with Jesus. Nobody saw what happened that day. Nobody knows 100% for sure. So we have to go back and we have to piece things back with the evidence we have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we can have all the faith in the world, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is useless. Faith is the key to all of this. Faith that Jesus died, rose, and appeared to his followers. So to look back, we have to piece the evidence together. But before we do that, I want to talk about the importance of the resurrection quickly. The three main points I want to talk about for the importance of the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy and God's final stamp of approval on Jesus being the Son of God. The resurrection set Jesus apart from every other person crucified, from every other person that that lived and walked this earth. He was who he claimed to be all along. He was so sure he was going to rise again that he even had the audacity to tell his disciples, I'm going to rise again in three days. No other founder of any major religion ever predicted their own resurrection. Jesus did it. Number two, number two importance. The resurrection gives us forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the promised Messiah. His death made atonement for our sins. He ascended into heaven, presented himself before God as the ultimate sacrifice, and returned to earth. That was the final stamp of approval. In the old Jewish sacrificial system, the priest would go in the Holy of Holies. Everybody would wait in anticipation. Is the priest going to come out? If God accepted the sacrifice, the priest lived and came out. If the sacrifice was not accepted, they were pulling him out. Jesus, his body presented toward to the Lord, to God, it was accepted. Jesus returned to earth. It's interesting. Jesus exclaimed, it is finished on the cross at 3 p.m. The exact same time the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. That's pretty symbolic. And the third, third reason that the resurrection is so important to us is hope for eternal life. Jesus conquered death and dwells with the Father in heaven and he promised us the same. We have hope here on earth. Our bodies could be weak, frail, sick. We're dying. There's victory over death through Jesus. John 3.16 says, All who believe will have eternal life and God cannot lie. This is the truth. What does the resurrection mean to us? It means everything. But in today's world of skepticism, we have to look at the alternate theories. And we have to study these because so I had a friend a couple nights ago saying, Man, I just got bombarded with all these questions. I couldn't answer them. Questions from my colleagues at work. They're questioning things in the Christian faith, and I couldn't answer them. We think, we got to have an answer. we got to have an answer. There's four main alternate theories to the resurrection that secular scholars will try to argue. The first one is that Jesus never really died, but he only fainted on the cross. So he never really died. He only fainted. And later was revived in the coolness of the tomb, walked out, and lived the rest of his life. Some of the things we have to understand to refute this theory is that Roman crucifixion, 39 lashes minimum, depending on the mood of the soldier and the mood of the crowd. The crowd's cheering him on, woo, woo, woo. Like, yeah, I can, I, can, I can whip more. And sometimes those guys would just tag in. The next guy would come in. 
The Roman crucifixion was brutal. The whip was made of glass, bone, clay, lead balls. Most people actually didn't survive the crucifixion and waste, or sorry, the beating, and then waste time having to go and be put on a cross. Sometimes the beatings were so bad they just died right there. Jesus suffered huge blood loss. Evidence of this and that he, he collapsed. He was thirsty. He suffered huge blood loss. Hypovolemic shock kicked in. There were no such thing as blood transfusions, and the coolness of the tomb cannot revive that kind of blood loss. Soldiers would be killed if their victims survived. This wasn't an option. They had one job to do, and do it well, they must. They nailed him to the cross. They didn't take him down until they knew for sure he was dead. They knew for sure. They had to know for sure. The Bible states in John that when the soldier speared through the side, through the right side of Jesus, out came blood and water. We know that it hit the heart. We hit, it hit the lungs. And we know that that blood and water, it was not water. It was a special fluid, pericardial effusion, that gathers up around the organs upon death. Jesus obviously had no water in him. So that simplified to that Roman soldier. He probably didn't know medicine at all. But he thought, every time I spear a guy, out comes this blood and water, they must be dead. He was dead. That blood and water symbolized that. How would he have gotten out of the tomb? Let's say he did survive. How would he get out of the tomb? Remember, he had nails through his ankles, his wrists. He had no strength left. Suffered huge blood loss. How could he roll away that huge stone? His shoulders were dislocated from the cross. And then why would the disciples follow a guy who rolled out of the tomb? Here I am. Follow me and you can have a body like this. They would have been, no, I'm not interested in this. Right? Why would they want to, to follow and worship a man in the shape of Jesus? We also have secular historians, like I mentioned before. Tassus, Lucian, Josephus all said that Jesus died. Most scholars will now agree that Jesus died on the cross. They will not give any more credence to his deity, but that he died on the cross. Famous skeptic John Dominic Crosson, he was founder of the Jesus Seminar in the 70s. Those guys gained a lot of coverage in Time magazine. And he said... That he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. Other than that, John Dominic Crosson doesn't believe anything about Jesus. But that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. The second point was the disciples stole the body. In order to convince people Jesus was the Messiah. This one is the, one of the most common ones. The disciples stole the body. You'll hear someone, Jesus was resurrected. Yeah, the disciples just stole the body. That's right. What was their motive? What was the disciples' motive? Why concoct this elaborate plan? In three days or less. And then die brutal deaths. People concoct these conspiracies for three things. Usually money, power, or lust. And we have no record of the disciples wanting any of these. There was no Oprah book club. There was no movie rights to sell. There was nothing that these guys could gain from stealing this body. Claiming that Jesus was resurrected. And then being tortured and on the run. Die brutal deaths at the end. How did these guys get in the grave? Did they bribe the guards to get by? They had no money. Did they overpower the, guard, over the, overpower the guards? Absolutely not. They were kind of wimpy little guys. They did not overpower the guards. The guards were killing machines. Jewish leaders had more money. They would have just kept bribing them back. Bribe them back. Guards took the place of any criminal that they were guarding if they failed. That's why the story, when, when Paul escaped and the jailer was about to kill himself, Paul goes, don't kill yourself. The jailer knew, oh, my guy escaped, I'm dead. Josh McDowell noted when a guard failed in their duty, they would often be stripped of their clothes. Clothes would be set around them, and they'd be lit on fire, and the soldier would die. That was the extent that the soldiers 
had to deal with. That was the extent of their torture, if anyone escaped their care. The disciples were in a state of despair. There was only a couple of them at the cross. They were devastated. They were on the run. Their Messiah failed. They felt Rome won. Everything was lost. The last three years were a waste. The disciples were in no state of stealing his body and starting this movement. And even still, the funniest thing too is, that, uh, is two years later they got to meet with Paul. Hey, let's go meet with Paul. We're going to convince him to give up his whole life in order to preach a gospel, be tortured, shipwrecked, martyred for, for this lie. We've got to somehow convince Paul of this. This story gets crazier and crazier, right? Why do this? Pilate's seal was on the tomb. Why would they know? Why would they go in, risk rolling it away, risk death? The Nazareth inscription, chiseled in a rock, the Nazareth inscription says, capital punishment for anyone who steals a body from a tomb. And that was in inscription back in that day. If you steal a body from a tomb, capital punishment for you. Why would these disciples do this with their whole life ahead? And, then, and, and for what? They were so disappointed. And then where did they hide the body? They never even had the body. Where did they hide it? Somebody would have given it up. Somebody would have cracked and said the location of the body. They would have marched it through the streets of Jerusalem and said, this is a lie and Christianity ends back then. Third theory. The women went to the wrong tomb on Easter morning. This one is uh, in the late 1800s. Kursop Lake came up with it and gained some traction. People, yeah, that's right. That's probably what it was. It's got to be the one. Well, the story of the women even discovering the tomb in the first place showing up in the Gospels is fascinating because of the role, the role of women in the first century. In the Greco-Roman culture, it said women, their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. In Jewish circles, it took two women's testimony to equal one guy's testimony. So for the Gospel writers to include the women as the ones who discovered the tomb and reported the news, that just tells you right there that the Gospel writers were writing the truth. Why not have Peter do it? Why not have John find it? Andrew, one of those guys. Even Thomas. Thomas found the, the tomb empty. But have, to have the women find the tomb empty, that's just evidence. More evidence that points towards the fact that these documents were the truth. This whole, this whole thing was based on the counter with the young man when the women went there. And it's kind of funny. They went there and we're looking for Jesus. And the young man says, if you're looking for Jesus, he's not here. And supposedly at that point they scream and run and don't listen to the rest of the story when he finishes and goes... Uh, he's risen and gone to Jerusalem. You're not listening. And away they go. And they're gone. You're telling me that that started this whole movement. Everyone in Jerusalem knew where the body of Jesus was. Especially Joseph of Arimathea. He'd be, uh, they went to the wrong grave. I'll show you where it is. It's, it's over here on, you know, First Avenue. So, no, it's Northeast, not Second Avenue. And Joseph takes him there, right? Even Peter and John, they knew where it was. The gospel tells us that three days previous, the women went to the tomb to help bury Jesus. Luke 23, 55 says the woman followed and saw the body carried into the tomb. They knew where it was. You can just think of the guard who that's guarding it, and the women are over here freaking out at the wrong tomb, and he's just standing like this. It's <clears throat> right it's here. Okay, nobody's listening to me, says the guard. And this whole movement starts, and the guard's still standing there. It's right here. Even if they were at the wrong tomb, where was the body? Produce the body, march it through Jerusalem and Christianity right there. Where's the body? Skeptics like James and Paul, they wouldn't have been converted by an empty tomb story. They needed to see Jesus face to face. So if they went to the wrong tomb, Jesus was not resurrected. The body would still be there. Where is it? The fourth alternate theory is that all the hallucinations, or all the 
appearances of Jesus were hallucinations because his followers missed him so much. But we have to understand, first and foremost, that no two people ever hallucinate the same thing. And we have record, Steve's uh, pastor's heart last night had a verse at the bottom, 1 Corinthians 15, and it talks about uh, this story in depth and this creed written within a couple years of all these events happening. It talks about Jesus appearing and it lists all the people. And all the people saw the same thing. And no two people hallucinate the same thing. 500 people saw Jesus alive again, over 500 people. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians too with that, he's taking a huge risk. He says to the Corinthian people, here are a list of people who saw Jesus again. Some are, still, some are sleeping, he says, or some have passed away, but most are still living. I challenge you to go talk to them. Find out. Say to them, did you really see Jesus alive? Spend some time. Do your own research, Paul says. You're not going to have hallucinations if you're a skeptic. Why would Thomas hallucinate the risen Savior? Or, or Paul? Or Jesus' brothers, James and Jude? Those guys were so mad, they didn't even show up at his death. Jesus had to say, John, you look after mom. None of my brothers are here. They're so mad at me. His brothers doubted him. They thought he's a joke. They were angry and upset that he wasted his life. They weren't even there. Hallucinations don't eat, drink, walk around. We know that Jesus, the one story, right, he's on the, the shore cooking some fish. Hey, guys, come hang out. Cook some fish, they eat together. They share meals together. They talk, they walk. Hallucinations also don't end suddenly. We know that Jesus, after 40 days, there was no more appearances. The Bible tells he ascended into heaven at that point. 40 days and the appearances ended. Hallucinations wouldn't have ended. They'd still be hallucinating for, for weeks and years to come. And if it was just hallucinations, back to the original question, where was the body? Where was the body of Jesus? If they were just hallucinations, where's Jesus' body? Is it in the tomb? Absolutely not. Somebody's got to find it somewhere. Beyond these arguments, the most compelling evidence for the resurrection that I think are the conversion of the skeptics. Conversion of guys like Paul, Jesus' brother James, and the 12 disciples. If you think about Paul, Paul made it his life's mission to hunt down, to destroy Christianity, to kill Christians. He was right there holding coats at Stephen's uh, stoning. Paul made it his life goal to get rid of Christians. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we have a turnaround in this man that goes from killing and torturing and hunting down to loving everybody, preaching the gospel, and becoming the greatest missionary in the history of the church. What stopped Paul from doing this? A story? A story about an empty tomb? We, we have evidence people with him saw light and heard the voice. They heard the voice. They saw the light. Paul tells us that the resurrected Jesus spoke right to him. Did Paul give up absolutely everything in his life? He was becoming, he was going to be one famous dude, educated under Gamaliel. He was a very, very intelligent man, very influential, and he gave it all up. Did he give it up because the disciples told him a story and he believed it? Paul would have been the biggest skeptic. He had to have seen the risen Savior face to face. What about James, Jesus' half-brother? who the Bible tells us didn't think much of his brother's claim to fame. He mocked him. I can't imagine. I can't imagine him all of a sudden being convinced. What convinced James to go from mocking his brother to preaching and dying for the gospel? 
good news of his brother's life. These guys had no reason to put their faith in Jesus and die brutal deaths. The deaths of the 12 disciples, they were all also brutal. 11 of them were terrible. Only John didn't die a brutal death. But don't discount John. He was thrown into a vat of boiling oil at one point in his life. Denounce your faith or we're chucking you in here. Put me in. Survived it, of course. God protected him. 11 of the 12 died horrible deaths. We have upside down crosses. We have stabbings. We have beheadings. Dragging through the streets until you're dead. These guys were made a mockery of in the public square. None of them ever recounted their belief in Jesus, even under extreme torture, death. They had no earthly reward. They, they, they left their lives, their wives, their kids, everything they had to travel the world of that time and preach and teach and end in death. You might argue that people die for their faith all the time. The 9-11 terrorists showed men will die for what they believe in. Well, the disciples, they knew for sure what they saw. They needed needed zero faith. They knew. They saw. They were 100% sure if it was a lie or the truth. They needed no faith. There was no stories. There was no stories passed down. These guys had first-hand account. Right? You tell me. You know, in in, in 100 years from now, there's a writing, the the, the largest 50-50 in Moose Jaw Warrior history was $400,000 in 2018. And we go, nobody's around to, di- to dispute that, right? Well, maybe it wasn't, and that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Maybe it was. We know the largest 50-50, though, is $166,615, still unclaimed. If you write that within the next few years, people will have that. They'll have that record, right? I'm not willing to die for something that's a lie. Nobody's willing to die for a lie. No one dies for a lie, especially if they concocted it themselves. And the disciples would have concocted this lie and then died brutal deaths. They didn't steal the body. Christian missionaries today or people of other religious backgrounds, we die each day for what they believe to be true. But that's the whole thing. It's about belief and it's about faith. The disciples needed zero faith. They saw firsthand the events. They knew if they saw him alive or if it was a hoax. They were not part of some elaborate conspiracy to proclaim Jesus as a Messiah. Chuck Colson, very famous uh, Christian evangelist, author. He began as special advisor to President Nixon. And was implicated in the Watergate scandal in the mid-70s. Served seven months in prison for his involvement in the scandal and the whole cover-up. And later in life he converted to Christianity. And he founded the Prison Fellowship International. He pointed out through his experience in this whole Watergate scandal, the covering up of wiretapping, uh, the CIA sneaking in. It was all before the presidential election where Nixon had the offices of the Democrats all bugged. and He didn't, supposedly, or did. Nobody knows for sure. He denied it. But Chuck Colson was part of this. And he pointed out the difficulty of several people maintaining a lie for an extended period of time. And here's his quote. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, as Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men, the disciples, testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, and stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. And he said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. They couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. (laughs) 
And those guys were all, as I was reading and researching this, they were selling each other out <laughs> instantly. Once word leaked, like, no, he did it. No, he did it. He, he did it. And they were all taking plea bargains and deals, and they were getting their sentences reduced. It was instant. So Chuck, he concludes, says, you're telling me the 12 apostles couldn't keep alive for 40 years? So the 12, what he's saying is the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, they could keep that lie for 40 years, never once cracking. He said, it had to be the truth. It had to be the truth. The lie of Watergate, three weeks, and it crumbled. We have 40 years, and that lie never, the story never changed. How did this world religion start in the very place where all the events happened? If it was a lie, right in Jerusalem, you don't even... It's not, it's not even like we, we take this story and we, and we start it somewhere else. Right in the heart of all the events and all the eyewitnesses, all the stories, everything that happened right there. Two of the world's greatest apologists today, Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, those two guys were both adamant atheists. Both of them, if you've, if you've seen the Case for Christ movie you know, recently or read the books, Strobel was very adamant he was an atheist. He was upset when his wife became a Christian and he was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and he said he made it a one-year life goal. One-year life goal to refute Christianity and get his wife back. So he spent one year researching, delving into all the experts in all the different realms, the psychological, archaeological, scientific, medical, trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. And in the end, he just kind of threw it down and gave his wife a big hug and said, you win. There's no way to refute this. Josh McDowell was the same thing. Josh McDowell was in college. He's a I'm way too smart for this Jesus stuff. I'm going to refute it. So he's writing this book, Refuting Christianity. ends up having to change the title to one of the biggest best-selling uh, Christian books called Evidence that, uh, that Demands a Verdict. And he, he had to change it. He said, I lost my original book plan but gained another. The evidence was overwhelming. Even, of course, C.S. Lewis. He was also an atheist. And uh, he spent time trying to refute Christianity. He ended up writing a book called Mere Christianity is a monstrous bestseller as well. He just gave up. He said, there's no way to refute the gospel story of Jesus. He lived, he died, rose again. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, he was a, he's a Harvard Law School professor. And he decided he would run the resurrection case through the most stringent of law tests. And tested if it would hold up in a court and how long it would hold up. It was the actions, finally, of all the 12 disciples and the conviction which, which they shared the gospel. So it was not just that they died a brutal deaths, but the, the conviction that they shared the gospel right until the end. Peter uh, was upside down on a cross. Andrew was upside down on an X-shaped cross. Uh, very awkward position. And they said Andrew preached for three straight days upside down on that X-shaped cross while getting beaten, stoned, mocked, whipped, everything else. So he's saying... That the brutal torture and the death was just one thing, but the, the fervency of which these guys preached the gospel. He said, There's no doubt about it that this case stands up to the toughest scrutiny. And he challenges any skeptics to take an unbiased approach to the evidence, and they will without a doubt come to the same conclusion. So we know Jesus changed history, right? We live in 2018. Why is it 2018? Because 2018 years ago, it's actually about 2 about two B.C. Jesus was born. We're not quite right on the dates. So one guy who was doing the math kind of messed it up a little bit. But still okay. 
Jesus changed the whole system of dating, right? This guy changed history. Turned the world upside down. There's more sermons, songs, oratories, poems, everything else written about Jesus than anyone in history. He changed history. There's no denying it. Did he change history because he was born, preached, did some miracles, died on a cross? No, Jesus changed history because he rose from the dead and appeared to his followers. There's absolutely no other explanation. Changed history because he rose from the dead and he appeared to his followers. And with the conviction that they had, they set the world on fire. They set it on fire. Peter says in, his, in Acts, Peter says in Acts 10.39, he says, we are all witnesses of this. We are all, he stood in front of that group of people right in Jerusalem and he's preaching. We are all witnesses to this. Jesus died and he rose again and he appeared to us and we ate and drank with him. And not one person challenged him that day. They were all witnesses to it. Because of this we have forgiveness of sins, hope for eternal life in heaven with Jesus and God the Father. That's all I got, Steve. (laughs) 